0: Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always, Sean Baker, and today's topic is the 1996 film Extreme Measures. So before we sort of dive into everything, let's go over a little bit of the plot summary. So our main character, played by Hugh Grant, is Dr. Luthen. He is a British doctor at a hospital in new york and he's he's on there at some sort of course program because he's only there for a couple more weeks and then he's on to nyu yeah and one day he well the beginning of the film we see these two homeless people escape from some place. they're disoriented they split up there's somebody after and we don't know why one of them ends up at that hospital treated by dr Luthen. Luthen tries to treat him He can't really figure out what's wrong with him because nothing's making any sense. Before he dies, the homeless man, you know, leaves some descriptions about the room and about his friend and there's something called tri-phase. And sort of the rest of the movie is Hugh Grant trying to figure out what this means. While we also see Gene Hackman, who seems to also be connected with what's going on. Okay, so now spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to be spoiled, you know, watch the movie first, then you know, then listen to the podcast. But um, he finds out that triphase is a sort of experimental testing that Hackman's doing to test for people who are disabled, who've lost the paraplegic, quadriplegic, um, and they test on homeless people because. Without their consent, and they do these testings, and it supposedly doesn't look like it's working because they've had to kill some of them or some of them are dying. Yeah. And so Hugh Grant sort of finds this. They try to suppress Hugh Grant. They, you know, try to ruin his career. They do the old... Have police break into your house and they'll plant drugs. Uh, yes. you know, Thing that I've, I've seen in like every conspiracy movie ever yes. made. Yes. I, I, and when I watch it, I was like, oh, let me guess, they find cocaine by his bed. They'd find cocaine yes. by and his bed. It's yeah. pretty
1: amazing that the cops aren't a little bit more suspicious of this uh, yeah. fact. And right. Like, who
0: has cocaine by their bed, by the way? <laughs> you know, it's, like, yes. it's so obvious. Yeah. There might as well just been a post it saying, here is the cocaine, you know? <laughs> right. But, they go with yeah. this, but you know, eventually he gets to the whole bottom of this and and leads to a confrontation between him and Hackman. Hackman's trying to get him on his side, see it his way. Grant makes a good early good speech that I think tells the point of the movie. Some people might find that too on the nose, but I think it works. Yeah. And so he blows the thing wide open. Looks like Triphase is done, but it's sort of ambiguous because he gets You know, um, Hackman's wife comes back with all the plans he was doing on that experiment on those experiments, saying, if you want to do this, but do it ethical, here's your chance. And so we're left sort of what Hugh Grant's going to do.
1: Yes. So that's a very good, thorough synopsis. Mm -hmm. Um, I would just add that um, all of the principal characters that are actually part of this grand conspiracy have uh, family members. Who are paralyzed, right? Yes. And it appears that the Hackman character, uh, Doctor Myrick, has um, recruited them uh, purposefully uh, for that for that reason, knowing, knowing that that would kind of be a weak point for them. And he apparently has a family member working at Triphase. I, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure the girl at the front desk, yeah, that's his is daughter. His daughter, although it's not made really clear in the film, but pretty sure it is. And that's the Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, character, who is a nurse at the Gramercy Hospital, where uh, Hugh Grant's character is interning, apparently, uh, she's got a brother who is paralyzed due to her uh, drunken, dri- driving drunk with him as a passenger. So they all have these motivations to take part in this research. And apparently what it is, it's, attempt, it's attempting to uh, create uh, some kind of... Witches brew of human growth hormone and other things that will allow uh, damaged nerves to regrow and reconnect, which nerves do naturally to some extent. But if you have a severe enough uh, injury, um, they they can't repair themselves. So that's the hope. And um, what's kind of interesting about the uh, opening, one of the earlier opening scenes is uh, this Myrick is very well admired, you can tell. And the Hugh Grant character uh, meets him, and he's kind of uh, in awe of the man. He's got a reputation. Uh, And there's also a scene where Dr. Myrick is is, uh, at a party at his house, and somebody's watching television, and there's a short story about the same kind of research being done on mice. Yes. And you kind of get a major hint by the way he responds to it. It's almost like he's looking at, like, looking at it and going, oh, how quaint, how primitive, how cute. And he's thinking, uh, as he mentions later in the film, that uh, animal research isn't going to cut it for humans because, unfortunately, each species has very specific, species specific uh, chemicals, growth hormones, or something mm-hmm. like that, that makes it impossible to rely on animal testing for. For purposes of humans, so he has made this decision uh, to uh, kind of go underground and have this uh, facility of his called Triphase, and he has purposefully uh, uh, chosen his subjects uh, in such a way as they have minimal contact with the outside world. Uh, he interv- we see him interview somebody, ask him if he's got any uh, relatives, relatives yeah. and. Uh, acting concerned and writing things down. And per- clearly the purpose there is to make sure this guy is relatively insulated, as it were, from discovery. Um, so he's made a a decision here that obvi- is obviously ethically charged and also obviously ethically wrong. Yes. Um, uh, and kind of what I like about the film, I mean, it's not the greatest film in the world, Right. Um, but what I do like about it is it, it's, it's kind of a, uh, almost a textbook example of a textbook example of a philosophical thought experiment uh, that you might use to put some pressure on um, uh, the utilitarian uh, point of view. Utilitarian uh, uh, theory and ethics is one that essentially says the right uh, act in any given situation for you to do is the one that ends up generating the greatest amount of benefits for the greatest number of people. And clearly he thinks he's doing that. He is sacrificing a few, probably somewhere between 20 and 50, uh, healthy. Although, uh, uh, in some cases, drug addled, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, men, uh, doing this research and he, he hopes that it would have payoffs not only for these individuals we see throughout the movie who are related to people at the facility um but for humanity as a whole he talks about i think he says i potentially we can save thousands and thousands millions yeah. of lives um, so he's made that uh utilitarian calculus there thinks that's worth it and it's um were uh it's uh of such import that it's not
0: necessary to get the uh, consent of these guys. Yeah, and reading I was doing some research on the film and Ebert, Roger Ebert wrote a review for it and he in his review he was talking about how one day he was listening to the Howard Stern show and the the topic was animal testing, you know, doing testing on animals for for drugs. And one woman called in, she was a cat owner, and she said, you know, as someone who loves cats, I couldn't imagine anybody taking animals and doing something like that. I, I I would never allow that. And then Howard Stern says, do you have any children? And she says, no. He says, well, this is kind of Howard Stern his, but he says, well, one day I hope you have a child. And that child becomes seriously ill and the only way that child can be saved is by sacrificing your cat and then you will know why we need to do stuff like this and it do, it it, it kind of connects because there's still animal testing today and it's still that thing where you know animal rights activists saying how could you do that you know you're you're causing great damage to these animals but if it's something for serious like say a cure for cancer Or something like, which even he brings up talking about if, you know, you had to kill one person to get rid of cancer entirely, would you do it? Yes. And it goes, comes down to that. Like, yeah, maybe what's being done to these animals isn't bad. But if it's done, like you said, this, if it saves thousands of people, if it gets rid of a horrible, deadly disease that kills so many, is that still good? Yes. Um.
1: And what I, the feature of the film I particularly like is, and I don't know if this is scientifically accurate or not, but it it says that, uh, you know, those animal trials will only take you so far. And uh, he says the only way I could conclusively test this uh, uh, possible uh, treatment I have is on human subjects before we could actually go, you know, as it were, public with it and and offer this as a sort of a treatment at hospitals. We we actually have a moral obligation, he says, in effect, to treat uh, to uh, test it on human subjects first because of the unique chemistry of the human being that can only be uh, replicated in living human beings, right? Yeah. So. Uh, You're right, there's a a parallelism here between the debate on animal uh, uh, testing and and medical research and this film. Um, And, you know, you've seen a movement uh, in in recent uh, years away from, as much as possible, using animals and animal testing. And uh, uh, also, very importantly, um, training of surgeons, Uh, but the substitutes that they typically use, especially for that latter, uh, purpose training of surgeons, uh, the non-living substitutes, kind of like uh, very sophisticated dummies with goo and stuff in them and anatomically correct parts inside that you can actually cut and sew and so forth. Even as sophisticated as a lot of that is, you will hear a lot of, uh, uh, Doctors in uh, schools say there is still no substitute for uh, for sur- surgery on actual living things, and I don't remember the exact place I saw this, but it's particularly acute um, the, the the necessity of using living things for that kind of uh, rehearsal. Is particularly acute in combat surgery. And uh, there are schools of combat surgery that use pigs. And they use live pigs, and they will injure them and have people practice on them in the field as if it was a battle situation. And they say there's just no substitute for that, and it would, in fact, be irresponsible to train on anything other than that Uh, for uh, medics and then throw them into combat and they are either through inexperience or just shock incapable of um, treating the human beings, the soldiers that have been injured. So yeah, they're not pigs, but pigs are damn closer to that than these very sophisticated dummies. So you need both use the dummies, but in some training scenarios, you need the actual blood and guts and noise and stress and, Believe me, a pig is a good noisemaker, and mm-hmm. it's very—it's easy to stress them out. They'll freak you out. You, you have to have people hold them down. Do the whole thing. Um, there's no substitute for that. And uh, Myrick seems to think something similar uh, with research, medical research on treatments.
0: And looking at you know the movie because. Uh, one of the things i said is this a black and white issue or is it gray i feel it's pretty black and white because what he is doing is he is taking these men without their consent they have no they have no idea what exactly it is they're being signed up for Mm -hmm. and you know and if he has no qualms if that if they die well they're just you know they, they did it for a noble cause and if somebody is you know part of it but they want to back out or they feel they know about it want to feel uncomfortable like dr Luther, he mm-hmm. has no qualms about either ruining his career or going to the full extreme measure and killing him but one of the things that you know he has this conversation with hugh grant at the end he says well you're not god you did not give these men a choice you killed and tortured them this is clearly wrong. One of the things I was thinking, say he gets their consent. Say he has people sign up for this, tells them exactly what it's about. And he says, you know, he f- properly informs him, like, mm-hmm. you may die from this. This could cause serious health issues. Are you okay with this? They say, I'm okay with this. If that happens, does everything else that happens make it okay as long as he gets their consent or even if he gets their consent because of the damage it could do to them is it still wrong
1: yeah and and this is actually uh, that's a great question and scenarios like this film are actually real ones are actually the reason that consent now is very much uh, front and center when you are doing any kind of medical research or treatment Or, as in this uh, case, kind of a combination of the two. Um, If you had fully informed consent from people that had been previously injured um, by uh, car accidents or something like that, I think you could get clearance from uh, the appropriate um, uh, regulatory entities that have been created to go ahead and do that kind of a uh, uh, experiment. On, on the other hand, as we see in the film, uh, he's not taking people that have been previously injured and doing research on them. Uh, no, he's kidnapping these these guys and uh, uh, surgically going into their spines, right, and and severing nerves at specific areas. Uh, and then doing his research and seeing how well the nerve regrowth occurs. You would never get that in today's world. You would never get that uh, that kind of a, a research um, project approved, even if you were able to get consent That's of right. would-be subjects. Not a chance. Part of that is, has, is a historical thing. Um, <clears throat> During, As you know, during World War II, um, Nazi Germany did a lot of uh, uh, human medical experimentation, right, for purposes of... Joseph Mengele. Yeah, Yeah. Mengele and some other people did it for purposes, for basically military personnel, protecting military personnel of their own. So, for instance, some of the horrible things they did, there's just a few. Uh, There's a lot, but just one that sticks out to me in my mind right now, is they did frostbite experiments. They would take um, people from Auschwitz and other concentration camps and basically just put them out in the cold until um, their limbs froze solid, right? And they, they obviously would give them no painkillers. And then they would uh, re- research what would happen to those arms as they defrosted and so forth. Over in the other theater of that war, um, the Pacific Theater, the Japanese had something like that. Going with their version of Joseph Mangala, uh, Doctor Shiro Ishii, and he ran a, a, a large network, uh, uh, primarily in China, in Manchuria. Uh, one one of which was a, a huge complex, U- Unit Seven Thirty One, and they did that kind of experimentation. They even did some uh, experimentation. Um, purposefully infecting people with diseases to see how the disease, the course of the disease would run horrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was going on in general return of that war on a, on a truly massive scale in those two theaters. Now that's not the only historical precedent though. Uh, this kind of thing on a less, uh, Uh, egregious scale was going on in uh, Europe and in the United States as well. From 1932 to 1972, the uh, uh, government here in this country sponsored a study of the long-term effects of syphilis. Uh, It's called the Tuskegee Experiment. They actually did this in cooperation with Tuskegee University and uh, uh, active cooperation of doctors at that university and a nurse at that university, uh, two of which were uh, black Americans, and they did this with black males. Um, They would recruit from a population of people that already had syphilis, claim that they were going to be giving them treatments, when in fact they really wouldn't give them treatments. For instance, when penicillin finally showed up, they they would purposely avoid giving these guys penicillin. Uh, and they would get uh, consent, I'm scare quoting that word, consent for spinal taps, claiming that the spinal taps were some sort of a treatment. And they followed these guys all the way from 32 to 72. A horrible, horrible uh, breach of medical ethics. Um, so y- y- you see a movie like this and you think, ah, this is kind of overboard, far-fetched, but you look back in history, you see these things uh, actually did occur. And not just as it were the bad guys, we did it too. Um, So I think it's a film that has a good object lesson in that regard.
0: Yeah, and I think when you see films like this, or when I... One thing that was popping through my mind is something more something Frankenstein like or even just, you know, the typical mad scientist doing human experiments. Like there is one of my favorite horror films of all time is a French film called Eyes Without a Face. And the main story is this brilliant French doctor has a daughter who when he was doing reckless driving, she got an accident. Her face was severely disfigured. And one of the things he does to restore her face is he kidnaps women who have the same facial structures as she does. He does surgical on them, removes their face, and tries to attach it onto her face. Mm-hmm. And you can see he's struggling with that because he's just saying, "I've done this so many times. I've, you know, I've done all these terrible things, and it still kind of goes to that where you know he's not gaining consent for these women. These women are dying after he does the experiment on them, and it has that." You think, it, oh, this is like a bad, mad scientist movie. and you realize, like with Tuskegee or with Mengele or, or with a guy in Japan, it, you know, it's not so far-fetched. Yeah, and uh, what's really troubling about it, uh,
1: this phenomenon, is uh, as we see in the film, I mean, I, I read a review that they said it was implausible that family members or people that have paralysis would go along with this kind of plan. I don't think it's implausible. I don't think it's implausible at all. And I don't think it's implausible that the professionals involved would be able to rationalize away their actions in the way that you see Dr. Myrick's character do. If you look at the uh, published reports from the Tuskegee uh, uh, Research, and they published several papers over the long term, uh, the nurse, Eunice Rivers, uh, who was on staff at uh, Tuskegee, is a co-author. And they actually approached her later after uh, uh, the exposure of this in 1972 by a journalist and asked her, you know, how do you, how, how can you justify what you guys did? And she defended it. Interesting. Hmm. She defended it as being, uh, uh, being not only... Uh, medically necessary and useful for the long-term history of uh, treating syphilis. But she also claimed that these men would got better medical care than they would have if they were out, out in the, as it were, the control population of Negro men at the time. Yeah. Hmm. So you think, like I said, you know, these kinds of ration, rationalizations uh, seem implausible. Well, she rationalized it. And the other doctors on her staff at Tuskegee, who cooperated with the U.S. government in doing this,
0: rationalized it in similar ways. And um, you were talking about how a lot of people, fe- the criticism of the film was people found it implausible. And I was wondering, was the reason, because this film, if you look on any sort of internet critical review websites, it's not extremely high, like... Mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes is sort of the big one, and it's only at fifty something percent approval from critics. Internet Movie Database is only giving it like a six. Um, another popular movie website has gives it a two point seven out of five, so not the best reviews. And I always I just try to gain a good consensus of what other people think. Um, one of the people, a lot of pe- th- criticism I heard is that this is a rip-off of the 1978 Michael Crichton-directed film Coma, which starred Michael Douglas. And I did a brief look at the... I haven't seen that movie, but I did a brief look at the plot, and I there is some similarities as far as not gaining consent from the patients and doing unauthorized things with their bodies. But it's not entirely, I would say, the same story. But I was wondering if the criticisms from this movie... ...are because this was in the 90s, and this is sort of, I think, when the hospital drama craze was really getting big. At the same time, speaking of Michael Crichton, but ER was coming out. This is the show that made George Clooney a star. You had that, and it was just another brief reflection of medical ethics at the time. We briefly um, learned that Luthen's father was also a doctor, and he lost his license because... You think it, was it a relative of his, or was it just a patient?
1: I believe it was a patient that uh, they imply that he assisted in his suicide. Yeah, yeah in so.
0: which it's the '90s that your mind is automatically going to go to Doctor Kavorkian yes. at that time. So, yes. I was wondering because starting in the 90s i think with er of this oversaturation we've had with medical dramas and also deal with ethical situations like not only er but there's a show called that's still going on for like 20 years now called Grey's anatomy Mm -hmm. but you know the show i watched dr house you've had all these medical shows is it because maybe it's a oversaturated genre that you think maybe people don't like this or they feel that oh it's too silly because I saw this. This was something like this on Doctor House, or this was on a Michael Crichton film.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, to my first kind of gut response is the popularity of medical dramas at that time actually would have been a a help for this film because people are more or less eager for it. But maybe you know by the time it came out, there was a saturation and people were just tired of them at that point. Uh, So that's a possible explanation. The explanation I have for the relative unpopularity of this film is, I think, to some extent, distance, historical distance from these episodes in our not-too-distant past, uh, sufficient enough uh, to where it seems implausible that doctors would just decide to do these things to other human beings without even considering getting their consent. Um, If they had made this thing maybe in the 60s or in the 70s, right after the Tuskegee experiment uh, blew up in public consciousness, perhaps it would have made a bigger splash.
0: And Coma came out that time, and that actually has gotten very good reviews. Yeah, Yeah. so
1: it, it just may be a function of distance and time. Although this is, what, 96, this one? Yes. So it's really, I mean... In terms of geologic time, I I shouldn't put it that way, but in terms of history, that's still kind of an eye blink. But as we know with modern media, it moves um, right along. It moves right along. And two weeks ago is ancient history now. So that might be the case. But I, I read those same reviews and I kept thinking to myself, this doesn't seem implausible to me. Things like this happened not so long ago. Yeah and even in our own country. That's my best
0: guess, anyway. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to other podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate the classic movie soundtracks that can be found at the So until next time, I'm Alex Baker
1: and I'm Sean Baker
0: saying so long and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.